Thank you very much, Alex, and welcome everyone to this morning's service. Uh, thank you to Rachel for uh, selecting those hymns which remind us of the greatness of our God and how indeed, as we will see this morning, how darkness does indeed tremble at the voice of the Son of God. If you turn to Luke chapter 4, we're going to read verses 31 to 43 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they're all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports of him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, the Gospel of Luke and John always tie in my mind for first place as to which is my favorite gospel. And maybe it depends what mood I'm in or what spiritual comfort or encouragement that I need. But one of the things that I particularly like about the Gospel of Luke is how Luke really gets under the skin in what can seem very straightforward, very simple stories. He gets under the skin of how sin has affected people, communities, and relationships. And he shows that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, that not only is sin dealt with, but also many of its consequences begun to be put into reverse gear. And this morning, we're going to see how the Lord Jesus practically ministers to people. Last week, you'll remember that Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth, and he had a promising start. All were wondering where he got this teaching and authority from. But then there was a bit of a smear campaign started to murmur in the congregation. They said, well, this man's just Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son. They tried to undermine his message by minimizing the man. The people in his hometown, his home synagogue, wanted evidence, some mighty miracle or sign that he was indeed whom he said he was. And how interesting it is, we learned last week, that they fly into a rage and they want to kill him. They want to throw him down the cliff on which their city was built because they couldn't accept the message that they too were in need of God's grace. And when Christ contrasts their lack of faith with the faith of two non-Jews who just believed God's word to them, they were highly and deeply offended. So our passage opens with the Lord Jesus going down to Capernaum. 
Now, for those of you who like your history and geography, and uh, also want to be assured that Luke is indeed a very accurate historian, Capernaum was 40 miles away from Nazareth. And it was actually located north, but 700 feet below sea level. And so this is why Luke says Jesus went down. In Capernaum, we know from uh, archaeological excavations, there were actually two synagogues there. There was a more recent one, about AD 300, 400, that was built. But underneath, there was evidence of another synagogue. And this almost certainly was the synagogue in which our Lord Jesus Christ preached his first recorded sermon here. It was this synagogue, this actual place in which the Lord battled with this, this demon and cast him out. And how exciting it is to think that this is where the Lord Jesus actually stood and spoke with authority. Uh, those of you who also like a little bit of irony in your literature, uh, we understand from Luke 7 that this synagogue was actually built uh, by a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a non-Jew. And how ironic it is that the Lord goes down to speak in a Gentile-built synagogue when he's been rejected in his hometown for showing how God's message was accepted by Gentiles. Now, we don't know if he just wandered in or maybe he was a regular attender, but a man on hearing Jesus preaching with authority starts to shout out and interrupt the synagogue service. Something about the Holy One of God and destruction. And our Lord Jesus, without flinching, says, be silent and come out of him. And in one fell swoop, the distilled evil in this man's life and experience was gone. He was there in his right mind, unharmed, and the center of attention. And as these people look at this man and what has just happened, they then focus their attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here was a speaker they had encountered like no other. One who didn't give opinions, but taught freely and confidently about the kingdom of God with authority and conviction. At the start, the passage says they were astonished. Now they are amazed. Because with a short command, this man's authority is seen over a dark power that they could only barely comprehend. It's very easy to sort of think in the abstract about lofty concepts of good and evil, about the Son of God, Son of God and Satan. And we looked at that in Jesus' temptation at the start of the chapter a couple of weeks ago. But here in Capernaum, evil gets really personal up close in the life of this man. The scriptures call him demonized or with a demon, not strictly demon-possessed, but it seems he wasn't far off it. And Luke and the other gospels are going to have many stories about the Lord's encounter with demons. In fact, Mark in his gospel account, not two minutes in, has this same story. And I remember when I was doing sort of various Christianity Explored courses that you immediately come in with an introduction to the Lord, his baptism, his temptation, and then this, this encounter with this dark power. And, you know, you sort of wonder, what's this all about? This is something very strange in, in I think, our experience. It's not something we, we encounter every day. Is this like a fairy story? You know, what are we to make of all of these demons? I'm sure some of you, if you've been catching up with the news, uh, will have maybe seen uh, about three months ago, there was a series of radio um, podcasts and news articles about some spooky goings on in room 611 in Allenbrook Hall at Queen's University. 
Now, I'd be pleased to know that the place has been flattened uh, 20 years ago, and there's now the very nice Queen's Elms, and I didn't see any sort of evidence of spooky goings on or demonic activity in the, the nice video around it. But there was something weird going on with a number of people saying they'd seen shadowy figures of darkness out of which distilled evil seemed to be coming for them, uh, things moving around, just lots of weird stuff going on. I my own questions about that, but it is interesting that really in every culture of the world, it almost seems easier for people to try and be curious or understand uh, the presence of evil, the fear of evil that is very real. Evil influences, the evil eye, spirits, ancestral spirits, entities that, that somehow can impinge on our lives, and unless we do something to try and ward them off or protect ourselves, they may cause harm. And this seems to be a, a, quite a universal thing. Now, there's lots of questions and lots of things where other things, types of mental illness, cultural issues can, you know, modify how that looks. But the whole thing is that today I have good news for you, no matter what culture you come from, no matter what the presence of evil you may think is going on in your life, because this has been dealt with by our Lord Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, there is no fear either in this life or the next, or indeed for your sons and daughters, grandchildren, about demonic, evil, satanic activity if you have given your life to Christ. Because he has authority to cast out not only evil spirits, but the ultimate evil himself, Satan. And I think there's maybe appropriate at this stage to have a, a short digression to talk about some of these things because we're going to come across this a lot as we go through Luke's gospel. And I think it's helpful to try and put in context what the Bible actually teaches about, about evil and demons. And before the ministry committee get too excited, I'm going off uh, topic, I will come back to the passage. So I think that there are kind of two mistakes that um, we make as Christians when we think about demons and evil. One of which is we can ignore them. We can attribute these accounts to like a pre-scientific understanding of disease and mental illness. They're kind of myth, or else we reinterpret them as you know, demonic power structures and oppressive uh, you know, corporations and things like that. But this view, really, if you believe in God, if you believe that there are things beyond this material realm, is refuted simply by the fact that this account is very personal. This is a man who is oppressed by a demon that takes control of his speech, that throws him down. He's not oppressed by you know, unjust social structures in the ancient Near East. He has something in the depths of his being that is very unclean, very destructive, and very hard to address. This demon speaks, it has personality. In fact, as we sang about, it was trembling at the voice of Jesus who said, be silent and come out. Verse in Matthew 4, uh, 24, makes distinctions when Jesus goes around. He heals diseases, pains, those with epilepsy, those with paralysis, and those who are demon-oppressed. So the witness of the Bible is that while demonic activity can cause all sorts of manifestations, actually, not all manifestations of demonic activity are physical or mental in nature, and by no means is disease or epilepsy or mental illness always caused by demons. In fact, there is a clear distinction being made. So it's incorrect to say that Luke and the gospel writers had a very primitive understanding of this area. That's one mistake that we can make. But there's also a very important second mistake that we can make, and that's become demon-obsessed. 
and we see demons in everything, in the PA system when it doesn't work, in somebody who's struggling with some sort of addiction or anxiety, and therefore deliverance ministries are created where people through exorcisms, through all sorts of elaborate things in the Christian church, try and drive out these demons or cast them out in the name of Jesus. Uh, there was a young lad with whom I played chess, and uh, he was telling me some really interesting stories about these demons that he was seeing being ca- um, cast out in some of the meetings he was attending, and I was you know, particularly intrigued about the woman uh, from whom a demon of classical music had been exercised, um, an intriguing thought, I must say. And so we're going to be really careful when we build whole theologies and ministries on maybe one or two verses in Scripture. Um, So, for example, if you read Daniel, Daniel talks about um, him praying and this vision he had of an angel who said he was wrestling with the prince of Persia. Not the 90s computer game, but some sort of territorial spirit that was um, affected by Daniel's prayer. And actually, people then derive whole ideas that, you know, we need to pray against various spirits in various locales before we can preach the gospel and things like that. None of this is biblical. None of this is helpful and can be very dangerous. What that verse in Daniel is meant to teach us was it was Daniel's prayer that was the most effective weapon he had. Not some conversation with a spiritual entity, but his prayer and trust in God and his word. The disciples found likewise when they tried to cast out a demon from a young boy and they couldn't do it and they asked the Lord, well, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus said, well, your faith is small, but this kind can only come out by prayer. Whenever men and women try to peer into the spiritual realm and trying to say, well, what's actually going on? They're hit right back to trust and faith and prayer in the Lord, not on their own abilities, not in some arrogant way of assuming authority and casting out these things, but in trusting to God through prayer that he will intervene. So we need to look at the balance of scripture. The Bible says evil does exist, it's personal. Satan, his demons, a fallen angel, one who crossed his boundary, he wanted to be like the most high God and he dragged these other spirits with them who because of their pride and their desire to assume what was not theirs, they were cast out of God's presence. And the Bible is very clear that they seek to wage a battle against all that is good including the Lord's people. But while these forces are powerful and extensive, they are limited and they are under the Lord's control. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in Christianity is there any hint that good and evil are equally matched. There is no hint that God is somehow needing to have Satan to balance the good. There's no dualism. There is no sort of equal weighting of good and evil. Much less do we as Christians have to obey the good God, but also in another part of our lives do strange things to ward off evil spirits or to overcome curses, overcome these types of things. In fact, if you are a Christian, you actually have a spirit dwelling within you, the Holy Spirit, who, through the change in our personality, through obeying God, putting sin to death, actually helps us to overcome these spiritual battles, not our own power or doing. So how do such influences occur today? I mean, you know, Luke recorded this maybe, you know, 30 or 40 years after these events had happened from eyewitness accounts, from interviewing people from records. And, you know, he thought it was important to put this in. So how do these things have any relevance for us today? Well, my own view from my understanding of the Bible is that 
demonic activity increased sharply and became more visible around the time of the Lord coming into the world. We know at times throughout the scripture that the Lord, God, controls the powers of evil, and towards the end of this world, the powers of evil will also have an unleashing, uh, relaxing of their chains. But all of this is under God's control. He allows Satan a limited scope. But with the Lord Jesus' ministry, his death on the cross, and his sending out of the disciples to, to preach the gospel after Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit living inside the Christians, I believe many of the much more severe manifestations of all these demonic activities were severely curtailed. And in fact, my own personal view, as I said, is that spiritual warfare is primarily waged through prayer, through Christians believing in God's word, meeting together, addressing sin in their lives, and applying through that trust in Christ, his work on the cross to defeat these invisible spiritual entities. Yeah, the Lord Jesus, he, he delegated authority to the apostles and some of those connected with them, like Philip. But I don't think we can assume this authority for ourselves because the New Testament, when we come to Acts chapter 19, this is part two of Luke's account, is very curiously um, silent about demonic activity in terms of possession and people's lives being taken over. So in Acts 19, Paul is ministering in Ephesus, a center of the occult, Books were burned uh, when people began to repent. The idols and silversmiths that created statues of Diana, they were losing their business because when the gospel came to defeat spiritual powers in the center of pagan occultism, it wasn't seen in dramatic deliverances. It was seen in a church being formed with elders. It was seen in people turning away from sin and trusting in God. And there's a really uh, quite humorous lesson that the last exorcism recorded in the Bible was attempted by the seven sons of Shiva. Now, they would make a great name for a late 80s uh, thrash metal band, but they were, in fact, seven sons of a Jewish high priest. They weren't Christians, but they had this itinerant exorcism ministry. And they came across a man in a house, and they said to him, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. And this entity said to them, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of, but who are you? And this man leaps from these seven men, strips them naked, batters and bruises them, and they run out of the house. I think we're to learn something about that, that the name of Jesus and his authority, as we read it here, isn't a magic charm that we take to our lips by to ward off evil. It is Jesus himself as the Son of God in our lives that has authority over evil, not ourselves. Evil is very much present in our world today, and it incites our passions, incites our sinful desires. Paul warns us in almost every letter he writes about the influence of evil in false teaching, in allowing sin into a believer's life. But he says the weapons of our warfare against that are spiritual, and he outlines in the book of Ephesians in this letter how Christians are to, to defeat Satan. So I have gone very far off the text but the important thing is, is that the Lord Jesus is not just another Jewish exorcist or rabbi with an opinion. He's something completely different from that that has gone before. He is the divine son with divine authority. So let's go back to Capernaum. And we now visit Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She's another person who is helpless and not in control in the setting of what is happening to her. She has a high fever. She had no doubt some form of bacterial infection leading to sepsis, a life-threatening condition, and people were very right to be worried about her. But then Jesus does a really interesting thing. He comes down to her, 
bends over her and rebukes the fever. Now, he's just rebuked a demonic synagogue attender. And so, was Peter's mother-in-law demon-possessed? Was this the influence of Satan? Now, I'm sure Peter wasn't the first son-in-law to wonder whether his mother-in-law was indeed demon-possessed. But we don't see any demonic entity coming out of this woman. So, so why did Jesus rebuke the fever and rebuke the demon? What, 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 is, he, what is Luke getting at here? Well, we read in Luke chapter 8 that we'll come across in uh, future weeks that Jesus is in a boat in a storm and he rebukes the winds and the waves and they settle down. The other rebuking that the Lord Jesus does is for his disciples for their lack of faith and in particular when they suggest shortcuts to the cross. So when Peter says, Lord, you know, you're not going to the cross, you're not, it's not going to happen. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes Peter. He rebukes James and John who say, well, let's have a little fiery uh, finish to your ministry here when these people haven't believed in you. Let's call down fire from heaven. Jesus rebukes them. And it is the Lord God, Yahweh, who in the Old Testament rebukes the Red Sea. He lays its foundations bare so that his people can come across. So Luke is here saying that Jesus has authority, not even over just spiritual powers that we can't really see, but in things that are very much in front of us, disease, disability, and ultimately death. And whenever this chaos and darkness threatens to broach its natural authority, to spill into places that it shouldn't do, as these demons wanted to in seizing control, as disease and bacteria did in not keeping the, uh, the ecosystem in balance, but in causing uh, destruction and the body to attack itself, Jesus rebukes it, and he brings back the natural order that God created. And we see in this wonderful picture how this woman, when she is restored, when she has this fever rebuked, she stands up immediately and she begins to serve people. Left to ourselves, we all have a sickness. It's the sickness that the Bible calls sin. We have no control over it. And sin has consequences in our spiritual existence, our relationship with God, and, and sometimes in, in mental and physical conditions. But when the Lord comes and rebukes these things, when he aligns us up, he makes us useful to serve others. And you'll see this as we go through Luke's gospel. Professor David Gooding aptly summarizes what is going on in these stories of spiritual warfare, that there are really two matters of supreme importance. The authority of the word of God, either written in the Old Testament or spoken by the Lord Jesus, and the identity of Jesus, Jesus as the Son of God. And Christ's authority is not just an authority that says, look, do that, and people can choose to ignore or obey. When Christ comes with authority, nature has to obey. These demons have to flee. When Christ comes with his authority into our lives, there will be changes in our lives if we are believers in him. He has an authority that is not just structural or positional, but it is effective. It effects change. And I know so often we want, you know, sudden deliverances, instant healings, or resolutions of situations in our lives. And we, we read these accounts and say, Lord, you know, take the spirit of oppression away from me. Lord, take the sickness or illness away from me. I, I can't take it any longer. Sometimes the Lord in his grace, I believe, does answer those types of prayers and does do something miraculous or uh, different to what would normally happen. But often, he says, well, you know, what you have in the end of all this is actually my son, my son who has authority over these things and his word. And it's no small surprise that bookending these 
this account that we read today and also through this chapter is Jesus preaching and Jesus teaching the good news. We see how while Satan tries even to twist the Old Testament scriptures, yet the Lord Jesus uses those Old Testament scriptures to show the character of God against evil and resists and overcomes Satan. And so this is the normal course and way in which we are to do battle with these things is through what God has given us in his word as we follow the Lord Jesus. And you know, the Lord is so clear about this. He will not even allow these demons who give a very correct um, confession to, to say anything about him. That he will just not permit it. They are corrupt. They are foul. Nothing must detract from the testimony of Jesus of Nazareth. It's who he is and what he is saying. We end up in this passage with, I suppose, kind of a bit of a wonderment at the widespread nature of suffering that must have existed in Capernaum. It wasn't a very large town. Because from morning to night, and even the next day, droves of people are coming for healing and exorcisms. But Christ addressed often their real need, which was to hear the good news of the kingdom, that their lives could be free, that people who were blind spiritually as well as physically could see, that people who were in captivity to all sorts of forces beyond their control could be released. Our Lord Jesus starts this chapter in a wilderness place confronting Satan, and he ends it in a desolate place, preparing for the selection of disciples and his future ministry. His battle with evil was a very lonely one because only he could accomplish it. In just the same way that he alone was able to accomplish by his death on the cross a victory over evil, sin, and chaos, because he was the son of God and the perfect son of man, because of that, he succeeded where every other human being had and would have failed. He did this on our behalf, on your behalf, so these evil, this chaos would not be a part of your experience such that you would find yourself eternally ruined or harmed if you come to Christ for forgiveness. So I want to think just at the end about how this actually might look in practice. Because I remember a, a girl, that we'll call her Brenda, that I knew um, from school. I was very friendly with her brother, and uh, Brenda was a couple of years younger than me. And she was a professing Christian. She'd you know, gone to the CU. I think she was even doing a couple of things in her, her church. But she confided in me, um, and this was probably, I think it was June, July time, before she was going off to university, that she was really struggling with her body image. A bit of self-harm and cutting, and a worsening eating disorder. And she was really in quite a, a dark place, even just listening her to what she was telling me. But then she told me that she'd begun to cast various spells and perform incantations and do all sorts of kind of quite strange rituals because of these various issues and concerns in her life. And I was pretty taken aback. I mean, this was all new to me. Um, you know, I was, was this something she was getting over the internet? Or where did she get all this weird stuff? It seemed that Brenda was really quite lost and alone and confused and troubled, and she was beginning to turn into a girl that I didn't really quite recognize from the happy-go-lucky, friendly one of just a few months before. So what would Christian ministry today, if we base it on what we've learned this morning, look like for Brenda? Well, you know, there's one thing that we could do, and that 
some Christians do is that we sort of seize upon the kind of occultic, witchy, weird stuff and we, you know, we start praying over her that demonic activity and structures would be destroyed and that things would flee. Uh, hmm, how would that have gone down? I think it might have been quite upsetting or confusing for this person to treat her as a passive onlooker and say that basically everything that you're experiencing doesn't really matter, it's just some sort of demonic entity. It's not very personal, it's not very human. And I think it could have caused her a lot of harm because if we did go down that path and she had meetings with Christians who performed these types of rituals on her, when it would feel, and it would do, because it wouldn't be addressing the issues of her heart, her issues of self-worth, her issues of understanding who the Lord Jesus is, whenever it all failed, it wouldn't be the deliverance ministry that was going to be criticized. It was going to be the Lord and the message of salvation, the Christian message that she was going to become disillusioned with. So it can be very dangerous, I think, to jump in and think, oh, this looks a bit weird. Oh, there's Satan and demons everywhere. Because you could be overlooking the real fact that maybe there were medical or mental health issues that did need to be addressed professionally uh, in her life. So let's try another approach and simply see this as a poor lost teenager. We've seen them all before. She's got these very social and psychological, psychiatric pathologies that are best addressed through secular counseling, medicines, and support services. And there's a lot to commend this, and I don't want to do uh, myself and my, my fellow colleagues out of a job, but it can only go so far. It can often be helpful at reducing the symptoms of many of these things, but often in mental illness and physical illness, and people who are struggling with their sense of identity, there is always a spiritual component. And the good news for Brenda would be that she can be free, but it might take some time for her to fully experience that. Because the solution, as we see from our passage, is going to be found in acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God, who has a claim and authority and power in her life to effect change. Even if there had been some sort of demonic influences in her life, it was going to be through prayer, submitting to Bible teaching, getting her relationship with the Lord, getting her plugged into a local church that was going to be effective for her transformation and indeed perhaps her salvation if she wasn't a Christian. I was quite immature at that stage and I'm only maybe slightly less immature now. My immediate instinct was to instruct and correct her. And that was probably not gonna be the best approach because what I should have done was just simply listen and treated her not as somebody with weird stuff going on or a case to be fixed or somebody with demonic influence, whatever, but as a person. And if you ever do come across somebody that you are convinced there's something bizarre or just evil going on here, never be afraid to direct your attention to the person. Listen to them. Speak to them as a person. Pray for and with them. And I would hope that with Brenda, you know, I mean, I, I was powerless. I had to come kind of to an end of myself and realize that, well, you know, she's going to university. We don't have that, you know, strong a friendship. I really know her more through her brother. But what I could do was suggest that, you know, thank you for sharing this with me. These are obviously big things in your life. I'm concerned about some of the things that you've taught me, but I think there's some things that may help. And I would certainly urge you to get plugged into a local church wherever she went to university, to regularly attend church, to read the Bible, and maybe to ask her, you know, have you prayed to God about these things, or do you have a favorite Bible verse? Because just maybe the opening of God's words in her life may completely change that situation, and just 
get rid of all this witchcraft and weirdness that she's using to control her life. Maybe if she went to that church, I could continue to pray that she'd come across a godly uh, couple, a, a, a more wise um, person of her, of, her, of her own gender that could befriend her and really start to do some digging in her life, not to psychologize it or to give her psychotherapy, but to walk alongside her, perhaps as a fellow Christian or somebody who is close to the kingdom, and help her see that in Jesus Christ, her identity is secure, that in Jesus Christ, the powers of darkness have no claim over her, and that in Jesus Christ, she can fully commit her life without fear and distraction from these other things going on. Maybe you could take her through, you know, this, this book of Luke. It would be a great place to start. And using this chapter where you can see that Satan, Brenda, promises you shortcuts. He promises you the desires to be fulfilled. He promises you power, authority, control. But it's all a lie because Jesus comes with the truth, his word. He comes with power and authority. And you can see, Brenda, how, you know, this man was not in control. He was tormented and troubled, as were many others. And Jesus sets him free. And Jesus can set you free, Brenda, if you'll trust him. I think ministry to somebody like Brenda, as often ministry to anybody whose life is chaotic and going out of control, will take time. A lot of wisdom. You may need to address some of the physical and mental health issues. But ultimately, if we don't have the spiritual creativity and imagination and trust in the Lord, what I've outlined is really just a bit of a fairy story, a comforting fancy. But it is because I was not sufficiently, I think, aware of how dependent I needed to be on the Lord's power. I tried to say things that I thought may have helped, and I should have committed her to the Lord and give her some practical solutions and, and followed up with her. And I didn't do that. And while Brenda has got a lot of her life back together, there's still a lot that is not right in her life, a lot of difficulties. So, we see Jesus' authority in our lives, and we need to make a response. Can I encourage you that if you are struggling or think you may be struggling with any of these demonic entities or evil in your life or darkness, wherever it may come from, that the only solution and the best solution is in coming to Jesus Christ. Get involved in a local church like this. Tell somebody what you're experiencing, a trusted Christian who will pray with you, not at you or over you, but pray with you. And like the Lord Jesus may indeed, uh, COVID restrictions notwithstanding, actually touch you, touch your life, be close to you, be near and very personable. Because it could be through that ministry that you are given a useful place in God's kingdom, like Peter's mother-in-law. It could be that you find happiness and contentment and joy and a hope and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has given this hope to millions of people who he has rescued from Satan's dominion and power and from the power of sin in their lives. Let's pray. Father God, I ask you for forgiveness for the times in which I have not properly ministered to the Brendas in my life, where I have not properly given them an opportunity to be listened to, to be engaged with as a person, and to be commended to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for us in the service today that while we have been talking about some things that 
maybe few of us have direct contact with or may seem a bit strange or even frightening. But I pray, Father, for us in this service that you will give us a clear view of who your son is, his character, his power, and the fact that he really does have authority over anything that comes into our lives. We thank you that we can claim this promise as Christians that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. No power, no dimension, no situation, no physical or spiritual force is going to stop that love of God from pouring into our lives and changing and transforming us into the image of Christ. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and how he came ministering to specific individuals. Help us, Father, as a church to minister to each other to help us to find our hope and our strength in what Jesus has done on the cross. And so, Father, as we value this cross, we count everything else that Satan promises us as loss. And we find in him the hope of nations. We find in him, Father, the three in one. And we can sing together as a congregation how great you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.